0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and
1: more. Using your face to unlock your phone or your fingerprint to get into your internet banking is something a lot of us have become a lot more comfortable with. But would you sell your biometrics for cold, hard crypto cash? A new business offering just that has caught the attention of overseas governments for all the wrong reasons. Screen time limits for kids are set to be enforced in China. Is this something we could see happening here? And is it really necessary? Plus, a husband and wife's cybercrime team have pleaded guilty to trying to launder $4.5 billion of Bitcoin. And that's the least interesting part of their story. Also, how artificial intelligence can help us this coming bushfire season. All this and much more coming up. This is your guide to the week in media, technology, and culture. My name is Ray Johnston, and welcome to Download This Show. It is a new episode of Download This Show. I'm Ray Johnston, long-time guest and sometime host of the program, filling in for Mark Fennell. And this week I am joined by fellow long-time guest, Seamus Byrne, Head of Content at Byteside. Lovely to have you as always. Yeah, good to be here, Ray. And we also have someone you might recall from our special episode on the future of money. Chris Berg, Director of the RMIT Blockchain Hub. Welcome back, Chris.
2: And hopefully future long-time guest.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. Now, swapping a scan of your iris for crypto, that that sounds like a pretty good idea to some people, especially those in need of a cash injection. But this isn't a distant future possibility, is it? This is happening right now, thanks to a company called WorldCoin. Chris, what exactly is WorldCoin?
2: What is Worldcoin is one of the biggest questions in the cryptocurrency industry <laughs> At the moment, I have to say so i'm 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 glad to give it a shot. Um, uh, so look, Worldcoin is a project. It's been around for quite a few years now. I should give some disclosure as well. They originally talked to us um uh, about thinking about what their token would do as well. So I haven't got really any inside information, but I can give you a high level overview of what they're trying to do. So, what they want to do is give cryptocurrency to every single person on the planet. That's the basic idea. Now, there's a really big challenge when you want to give it to every person on the planet is that you've got to make sure that nobody tries to claim it twice. And that's where it becomes very very difficult because of course, you know, if someone's giving away free money, a lot of people would want to, you know, double dip. So, to solve that problem that they've created I mean, technically what you describe it as a sort of biometric identity manager, but it looks like this giant orb. You look into the orb, it scans your eyeballs and some other biometric markers, and it decides whether you are a unique person or not. If you're a unique person, if you haven't claimed the world coin token already, then, then you get to get your world coin. A huge amount of people, lots of people in the cryptocurrency industry particularly and around the world have have basically responded, well, this sounds a bit creepy. The idea that we would be collecting biometric data on every person on the planet, isn't that a really clear privacy violation? And, and that's where the debate is and that's where all the controversy is.
1: And one of the big questions that there always is really when there's a big piece of technology that's looking to take over the world is who exactly is behind it? What do we know about the founders of WorldCoin, Seamus?
0: Yeah. So, you know, the most prominent figure behind WorldCoin is Sam Altman, who has become very famous over the past 12 months. He's the CEO of OpenAI, which is currently behind ChatGPT. And so, you know, his profile has become very significant, but it's also backed by, in particular, I guess, Andreessen Horowitz, who are one of the really big Silicon Valley venture capital firms. Uh, and a company that I don't know much about, but it, it's one of those kind of tricky names because it's called Tools for Humanity, but it really, you know, that's the kind of name that you would give as a front to an evil empire that's distributing <laughs> iris scanning orbs across the planet, wouldn't you? Like, so it, it, it's definitely high minded in that sort of that key goal. And people like Sam Altman have been proving that they want to be really positive figures uh, in what they're attempting to do in tech. But yeah. Silver orbs scanning eyes all <laughs> over the planet. <laughs> you can't help but wonder if it's a part of a Bond movie.
1: Yeah, this is straight up sci-fi, either dystopian or utopian, choose your own adventure territory here. So are people actually signing up to this program though? Are they going, yes, absolutely. Put my face in front of this giant orb. Give me some crypto.
2: I mean, unsurprisingly, they absolutely are. I mean, part of the part of the thing is, it is trying to solve a very real problem, or, yeah. or, or you can think of it as trying to solve a problem, which is that there's a lot of people who don't have secure identity documents that can allow them to make financial transactions, in, in, in fact, even get bank accounts and so on and so forth. And that's only going to get worse as um, AI becomes more and more dominant. Of course, Sam Altman contributing towards the development of AI as well. So there's a wonderful closed loop there too. So I think there is a, there's definitely an underlying problem that is worth trying to solve. But I think the solution to this is they've just ended up at a very creepy end. But as you say, you know, a lot of people are really excited by it and they're getting huge numbers of uptake, particularly in the developing world. They've uh, really struggled to operate in some of the richer countries in the world, but in the developing and poor world, they've got a huge amount of uptake.
1: So addressing the elephant in the room here that we've all kind of been hinting at a little, the safety concerns with WorldCoin, what are they, Seamus?
0: Look, uh, you know, one of the really big things that people do get worried about is when biometric data is being collected in this sort of a way, how is it being stored? What is being done with it? You know, where is the, I guess, the transparency around exactly how this sort of stuff is being managed? And it does sort of raise those concerns when they have really focused on a lot of developing nations as as their sort of test bed in, in essence, you know, to encourage people to sign up in exchange for roughly like American kind of $50 in currency. Though again, it's, it's a cryptocurrency. So of course that value is based on what people are willing to, you know, trade it for. Yeah, that's the kind of key concern. Personally, I'm less concerned in terms of the way that, The scanning concept, in essence, a little bit like sort of Chris was touching on there, and that it's really about that first point of identification to prove that, you know, someone is claiming an account who is a unique person. But, you know, typically these days, this means it gets hashed into, you know, a cryptographic piece of information that wouldn't really be useful in other contexts or in other sort of formats, you know, in the same way that when I use Face ID to unlock my phone, uh, that isn't transferable to some other device to then, you know, have my face. And that's one of those things I think people can sometimes get over concerned about is, is how transferable that piece of biometric data is. But, you know, aside from that, I think, yeah, there's definitely real concerns. In particular, the Kenyan government has decided to actually sort of step in and put a halt on it because they basically want a lot more information about exactly how this is being done and the way in which private data of their citizens is actually being managed.
1: Is the Kenyan government overreacting?
2: Possibly. In this case, there's news reports over the weekend the Kenyan government actually raided some of the officers for Tools for Humanity. So it's a pretty serious thing that's happening in Kenya. I've mentioned the word creepy a couple of times because I've done a lot of research into privacy in the past and the word creepy just keeps coming up because it, it describes a situation where it sort of passes over a threshold that's kind of hard to describe because obviously, you know, as Seamus has pointed out, we use facial recognition all the time. Governments use facial recognition all the time. But somehow what World Coins managed to do is just pop over that threshold where people are seriously uncomfortable about it. And I think the Kenyan government, like a lot of governments potentially in the future, is reacting against that general sense of hard to define sense of this this goes over a very fuzzy, but in a lot of people's um, uh, minds, very real line about something that's legitimate and something that is creepy.
1: Would you sell your biometrics to a, a company that is owned by someone who runs AI for Well, some we sell, I mean, cash?
2: We, we trade our biometrics all the time. I mean, so <laughs> yeah. um, often, often, you know, if you want to cross an international border, you trade in biometrics i'm personally a lot just as concerned about government use of biometrics as i am a private use of biometrics at least i i I think there's a um open degree of open source software element to the Worldcoin project that allows me to do some verification that i can't do with governments i I have very real concerns about the project but i think we have to contextualize it in well you know we do a lot of the stuff already
1: yeah, as a way of participating in society, we have to engage in this way, don't we, Shamus?
0: Yeah. And and that's it. Like my concerns then almost come in more, you know, a, a couple of steps down the chain, you know, what's to stop someone from just sort of forcing a bunch of other people to go and claim their world coin and then transfer that world coin to their account? You know, like, there's sort of those aspects where you sort of think, well, you know, there's other links in the chain where someone could abuse the system that's been created here. And that's where you want to make sure that there are appropriate, you know, checks and balances and processes there To ensure that, particularly with this focus on developing countries, that, you know, that there aren't abuses happening to just start trying to find these angles in which someone could decide, well, I'm going to just start finding ways to scoop up a bunch of this currency early on because not that many people are paying as much attention as they should be about those kinds of uh,
1: security processes. Download this show is what you're listening to. It's your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. And now for a topic that I feel like we've been discussing for literal decades. It's screen time. And China wants to limit it for kids. But why? What is the goal here, Seamus?
0: Yeah, so China, they have the Cyberspace Administration of China, the CAC, uh, and it is basically you know drafting its latest round of efforts to stop kids from staring at their screens way too much. So, you know, China's already had a number of limits in place for sort of gaming and different kinds of screen activities. And this is an effort to kind of really put in place a number of new measures focused on the the key list here is kids under eight would be limited to 40 minutes a day, eight to 15, one hour, 16 and 17, two hours. And then once you're 18... I guess, you know, go for it like any adult who sticks their nose in their device way too much. But they're also kind of looking at ideas around having a minor mode uh, that actually restricts usage. And that includes with kind of different kinds of smartphones themselves, apps and app stores. And yeah, there's kind of a lot of kind of different moving parts in sort of how those systems would work. Things like 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. curfew. So like no device at Uh, activity at all uh, in those kinds of time windows. Clearly huge amounts of sort of technical aspects of what would be required to kind of implement this stuff across devices. But yeah, definitely the biggest push we've seen yet when it comes to them really sort of looking at how do we put quite, uh, you know, specific restrictions in place for all aspects of screen activity.
1: Yeah, how does the technicalities of this even work. You know, how does the government know how old you are and how long you've been on your phone, Chris?
2: So that's part of the the particular Chinese system of both technology control and internet control as well. There's a very, uh, very complex and very rigorous management about identification connected to um, when you when you purchase phones and when you purchase online devices. It's obviously connected to the Great Firewall of China and controls over the internet as well. Um, so in fact, that's not the hardest problem, I don't think. The um, idea that they'd be able to figure out how to manage this. They've got a lot of control over applications on app stores, so they can certainly impose rules and restrictions on the app developers themselves. I think the biggest problem here is a really very simple one. It's that this will be applied to the children's phone, not to the parent's phone. As someone of children in these age brackets, I know that they have access to their parent's phone as well. And <laughs> yes. um, and sometimes I give them that access. That's not um, without them just, you know, stealing it from my pocket. So in, in that sense, like, I can see that there's obviously a demand from parents I know in China and definitely I know in other countries, but the effectiveness of this policy to actually limit screen time will really come down to the parents themselves, I expect, and as, as it already does.
1: And are the parents in China asking for this? Is this something they want? And are they happy to hear about it?
2: It's very difficult to get good polling data out of China, unfortunately. But um, <laughs> uh, there are anecdotal stories that parents do want it. And as I say, I think there's good reason that like, a lot of Australian parents would like some support in some way, because it is really difficult. In fact, I, I've literally just bought my 12-year-old son his first phone. And we're trying to figure this out because like everybody else in the country, I spend all my days on my phone. How can I tell my child not to do so on theirs? What sort of reasonable restrictions and rules and how does it relate to all the other screens in the home? This is a really difficult thing, but there's not it's a difficult problem with no real answer. And I'm very skeptical that any government, and particularly the Chinese government, would be able to come up with the ideal solution that would work for all families, all parents and all children.
0: Yeah, and I've kind of seen that a lot of the quotes, are like sort of Chris said, actually, they they seem really reflective of of Western attitudes from parents as well. You you see that mixed bag of parents who think I'd love some help when it comes to how to manage my kids and how much they're using their phones, right through to seeing you know some parents joking that adults maybe need this just as much as kids to get <laughs> to get them to use their phones less. Uh, so you know, I think there is that full gamut there, and it, it really comes back to that whole idea of going, well, what well, part of this is about, you know, encouraging and educating better conversations and relationships between parents and their kids to sort of set rules and for you know parents to actually parent this way versus putting like really kind of severe restrictive processes in place thinking that that in itself is going to solve the issues of you know, screen time. you know. In some ways, I often think it's a, it's a symptom of other issues and not necessarily the problem in itself.
2: I also should point out that the technologies that we have right now has all this built into it. So having just set this up for my 12-year-old, I have complete control about how long he uses his apps, how long he can use his phone. All that technology exists. I think the, the Chinese policy is the government saying, well, we've decided that under the age of eight, it's 40 minutes, under the age of 16, it's two hours or, 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 or what have you. It's the government deciding what the rules should be rather than the parents lacking the technologies to impose their own controls.
1: Now, there's a lot of anecdotal evidence, but there's been a lot of conflicting studies as well. You know, often this is a conversation around screen time that is lacking in nuance. You know, the type of screen time that we get is just as important as how much screen time we get, especially for kids. You know, we've looked into before on the show that there's a big difference between active technology that engages our minds and passive technology that we simply consume Do we even have a definitive answer on if screen time is bad for us, Seamus?
0: Yeah, look, the the biggest one, like you sort of just uh, touching on there, is that it's not a yes-no answer, that so much of it is about the quality of the time that we're you know spending what are the what are the apps we're using there's an you know total difference between someone who's looking at a screen because they're researching something that's interesting or they're learning something interesting versus someone who is Playing a game that is a truly mindless game versus a game that is also maybe teaching them something or just is a great piece of storytelling, yeah, or watching videos or all the kind of different modes in which we use a screen. Uh, You know, like our phones are these amazing tricorder science fiction devices that can do a million different things. So, really, it keeps coming back to that idea for me that it's, yeah, it's the quality of the time. And, you know, from all the researchers that I've spoken to, it's, yeah, that idea. And I even have installed a blocker myself on my own computer that does during certain parts of the day help me to go, yeah, this is work time. Don't let yourself get distracted by random social media uh, threads. You know, just keep that out of out of your hair, you know, and so um, I can still use the rest of my computer during those windows of time and use it for lots of different reasons. But just being able to say, I'm going to put restrictions in place on these specific things that I know will easily distract me or, you know, send me down that rabbit hole where I think it's only going to be five minutes, but it turns out an hour has passed before you've even noticed. Uh, That sort of stuff can be really, really helpful. And again, these kinds of, you know, hammer type problems where a scalpel would be a little bit more helpful to people, uh, I think, yeah, isn't going to be a great long-term solution.
1: You are listening to Download This Show. I'm Ray Johnston, filling in for Mark Fennell, and I am joined by Seamus Byrne, Head of Content at Biteside, and Chris Berg, Director of the RMIT Blockchain Hub. And now, this is a story that will definitely be made into a film in the future. Chris, who is Razzle Khan and what did they do with Bitcoin?
2: <laughs> you couldn't have set that up better. This is a story about a $4.5 billion theft, huge hack, one of the biggest in the cryptocurrency space. Um, And it turns out uh, the people who did the hack, or certainly one of the people who did the hack and their partner, Ilya Lichtenstein, and the partner's name is Heather Morgan, have just pled guilty to that hack. This is the Heather Morgan character you're referring to, who goes by the name Razzle Khan describes herself as a hip hop artist and economist. And if you Google Razzle Khan and you you can see all these videos of Razzle Khan doing rather terrible raps, but again, she's an economist, so I I, I have to be um gentle there. Um it's a really interesting story. It's really interesting for lots of lots of reasons. Um uh, I'm particularly interested in, you know, how they tried to launder the money. It was very surprising when their names first emerged because they look like the exact opposite of elite hackers that you imagine. (laughs) Really one of those stories that could only come from the cryptocurrency industry.
1: So do we have any details on how they actually went about this? How did they launder this money?
2: So we've got quite a lot of information about how they laundered it. So the thing about Bitcoin is it's only really just text code. It's really just what we call private keys, effectively passwords. And as long as you've got the password, then you've got control of the funds. So they were able to do things like store the passwords for this Bitcoin on phones that they cut cut out books and put the phones into the books and little, what we call um, uh, uh, sort of flash drives that you keep the data on as well. They managed to keep that in their apartments and just on their um, property for a very long time. But you can't go off and spend those codes. You need to convert them into dollars. So it's that laundering, that process of trying to convert it from Bitcoin to dollars so that they can go spend their ill-gotten wealth. That's where they got busted, and they made a number of mistakes. One of the most interesting one was trying to convert the um, Bitcoin into gift cards. Um, this is apparently a very common way that people try to launder money. You launder through gift cards. There's a degree of anonymity when you hold a gift card. But it turns out that the FBI is fairly well able to connect gift cards to identity. So that led to the trail of, oh, turns out that that Bitcoin came from the Bitfinex hackers and they were able to match the um, identity of the hackers to to obviously the stolen funds. There are so many hacks And uh, cryptocurrency thefts in the cryptocurrency industry, it's a lot harder to spend that stolen money.
1: This does seem like a one in 4.5 billion story, but are there others like it out there? Do do people do this on the regular, Seamus?
0: I mean, I haven't heard of anything on this scale, you know, 119,000 Bitcoin, you know, short of the the occasions when people stole from the classic sort of Mt. Gox, you know, uh, cryptocurrency exchange, you know, which brought that whole exchange down, sort of all those kinds of big incidents that have happened in the past. Uh I haven't seen anything like this one. And look, that's the thing that I kind of love about this is actually, you know, so much so many of the stories that were told about Bitcoin in its early days was of course, you know, its use just as this kind of, you know, criminal currency and how it was it was all anonymous. But actually, you know, the entire concept of blockchain is actually that everything is linked to every other transaction. And so yeah, the second they were able to identify one transaction that could be tied back to the Bitfinex hack, they were then able to kind of follow all those threads and realize that these people had tried to distribute it into all these different kind of thousands of areas and even through to like buying gold coins and and stashing them. And so now part of the case is, you know, is them saying, well, yeah, we're going to start like reclaiming all of the things that they've purchased using uh, those funds. And it's like, they might've managed to kind of wash a little bit of it along the way, but the second kind of one of those you know, links appeared, then you know, then that sort of domino of all of the different links in the chain became
2: totally apparent.
1: I'm definitely seeing this as a Netflix limited series for sure. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I mean, it, it's a really important point because um, a lot of law enforcement agencies really like The existence of technologies such as Bitcoin for exactly what you're describing, that it's all public transactions, it's fairly easy to trace those public transactions back to real world identities to see what they've been spent on. It's actually a very powerful technology just for transparency of finance. Now, that's that's kind of a problem from a, from a commercial viability perspective, because not everybody wants to make every trade and store all their funds completely in public as well. But it does make a lot of the claims that Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies are a threat to the legal system or a threat to law and order kind of, kind of laughable because it <laughs> yeah. is just so public.
1: Download this show is what you're listening to. It's your guide to the week in media, technology, culture, and some AI for good news. There's a new network that's going to help us navigate the upcoming bushfire season. Seamus, how will this work?
0: Yeah, this is fantastic. So a company called Pano AI has uh, worked with the South Australian government to actually put together a network of their sort of, I think they're still in the process being installed, but there's going to be 14 uh, AI camera locations using a lot of the the cameras going to be put into locations where there are sort of fire monitoring towers uh, existing today. And to, yeah, set up a really solid monitoring system for an area called the Green Triangle, which kind of spans southeast South Australia and southwest Victoria. Uh, and to be able to just detect bushfires heading into, you know, this next summer, we know that it's probably going to be a bad fire season again after a few sort of wetter years. Uh, and being able to kind of keep an eye on this, along with the cameras, there's going to be a mixture of like satellite feeds you know, cloud detection systems, other kinds of of information alongside that AI to just be able to try to spot any kind of a fire incident as early as possible in order to react. Uh, And, you know, in the particular region it's in, uh, there's a a big forestry industry aspect to trying to, yeah, ensure that they can, you know, manage this as swiftly
2: as possible should something occur.
1: Sounds pretty good across the board. Are there any risks involved with this, Chris? Uh, look, there aren 't
2: to be honest, and I think the the i, I, I don 't think that we should look at all AI applications as if they 're full of risk obviously we 've been really excited by the new generative AI models that have been coming out, and a lot of being, people have been talking about well what does this mean for misinformation, what does this mean for democracy all these sorts of things are interesting conversations, important conversations, but I think this is a really powerful reminder that you can have technologies that that have none of those real dangers we are we we are immediately solving very serious problems we have with frontier technologies and it's not just ai that's at the heart of this it's low cost sensors it's low cost cameras it's what we call internet of things technologies can be used to make um, make life better, make us safer, and um, make us more secure. I think that's a. This is an overwhelmingly positive story, and should remind us that technology, you know, it 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 genuinely changes our lives for the better.
1: Sometimes it really is just good, and that is all that we have time for on the show today. A big thank you to Seamus Byrne, head of content at Biteside. Great to have you again.
2: Yeah, good to be back.
1: And Chris Berg, Director of the RMIT Blockchain Hub. Thanks for joining us.
2: Thank you so much.
1: Now, if you enjoyed the show, be sure to leave a review on whatever podcasting platform you use. I'm Ray Johnston, and thanks for listening to another episode of Download This Show.